It's a dreamy setting for a river cruise or maybe a bike tour. With forests and castles aplenty, the Rhine River Valley is storybook Germany, complete with legends told by those who navigated its waters. Of course, they couldn't admit that they were bad sailors, so they had to come up with a story. It's also witnessed a lot of important history. East of the Rhine, the barbarians live west of the Rhine with civilization, and that idea went all the way through into modern history. Coming up, hear what you can find in the romantic Rhineland. The nations bordering the Indian Ocean are among the poorest and most crowded on Earth. Journalist David Mould has been getting to know the people of Madagascar, Bangladesh, and India in the challenges they face. Bangladesh is about the size of Illinois or Iowa and half the population of the United States. Come along from the Rhine to the Ganges and wherever you want to go in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. Even before the COVID variants hit hard in India, the people of South Asia already had plenty to deal with. Widespread poverty, such population density, and an overheated climate can make getting by day-to-day a challenge. Coming up, David Mould takes us to India, Bangladesh, and Madagascar as he chronicles life in the far corners of the Indian Ocean. And later in the hour, listeners tell us where they hope to be able to travel soon. Our hearts are heavy, knowing that the romantic views of castles and vineyards in Germany's Rhine River Valley are overshadowed by the recent loss of life and flooding devastation in Germany and the Low Countries, just downstream from where we're talking about. The following interview with tour guides Fabian Ruger and Nico Favaril was recorded last year. Hi, thanks. So Fabian, give us a, a feeling for the medieval Rhine, which really created the Rhine we see today as tourists. The most important trading river... With the Romans already, the problems with the Rhine began. It was widely considered that east of the Rhine, the barbarians live west of the Rhine with civilization. And that idea went all the way through into modern history. France, of course, tried to make for centuries the Rhine its eastern border. Uh, The Germans fought back, and eventually, of course, that ended in the 19th and 20th century. That is interesting when you think about it, that the Rhine would have been a, a huge border culturally between the Romans and the barbarians, and from a French point of view, between the French and the Germans. Yeah. So when you have a border like that, Nico, in, in Europe, generally what happens? It's uh, where wars happen. Between France and Germany, a lot of wars happen, and the Rhine either stopped the wars or uh, a lot of areas on the border, especially in the French part of the border, for instance, the Elsass region, has been taken by Germany many, many times. Um, so it's a war zone, not only between countries. It's also been a war zone between religions, Catholics, Protestants fought over areas in that area. Today even, I mean, today it's kind of the border between Catholic and Protestant Europe. Yes, you could say that, yeah. yeah. North of the Rhine is definitely more Protestant. Yeah. Now, when you have the, in the Middle Ages, there was not a lot of uh, paved roads. There was not a lot of law and order. If you wanted to get your goods to the market, going down the river was was one safer way to do it, I suppose. It, it was a safe way, but you had to uh, be careful of something called robber barons who stopped ships along their journey, but big chains along or or across the Rhine made the ship stop and then steal everything or 
steal everything in the well, form of, of duties. And yes. They would just say, you've got to pay 10% of what's on your boat to continue down. Yeah. I've heard this word robber baron castle, so maybe the Rhine River, Fabian, is, is sort of the quintessential example of a robber baron castle zone. Robber baron is a term, in particular robber knights, for a particular phase during the Holy Roman Empire where knights had fallen so poor that the only way to keep their status was to rob uh, traders and so on, even if it was not their right to do so. And eventually the problem became so bad that you had this middle class of knights who had fallen poor and became mm -hmm. robbers that the big tradings and merchants, the cities, gathered a union and under the emperor, I think it was Rule of the Second, 13th century or so, they sent this army along the Rhine to clear out all the robber knights' castles and literally hung them from the trees along the Rhine. Uh, and after that, there were no more, no more robber knights. But it was a pretty grim two or three years when that happened. When we think about the Rhine, it's a long river. It goes basically from Amsterdam all the way to Switzerland. Mm -hmm. uh, but every tourist thinks of the romantic Rhine River Valley. Nico, where is that exactly? And how, from what city to what city does it go to? Um, the, the stretch that has the, the most romantic feel is from a city called Koblenz. Yeah. And it goes all the way to... You could say Mainz, but in theory it's more Rudesheim, but Mainz is maybe more a better-known name, and that's a stretch where the Rhine is at its narrowest. So if you can name a castle, it's probably along that stretch. Yes. And that's where the tourist boats go, that's where the tour groups go. Yes, that's where you have day cruises or, or two-hour cruises, but you have a lot of uh, big cruise ships who sail from Amsterdam to, say, Vienna, and they have to go through that gorge as well. So I understand you were a cruise director on, a, on, the, on the riverboats that went down the Rhine. Yes. And you narrated this trip. Uh, if you're cruising down the Rhine, what are your favorite three or four castles to point out? Oh, uh, it's quite a lot of them. I think there's like 25 <laughs> worth visiting. Of course, you have a few castles who look pretty and are photogenic. You have a small little castle called the Gravenstein, which looks like a stone ship. It's uh, built on, on a little island in the middle of the Rhine. So built literally in the Rhine. In the Rhine. Then the um, Marksburg Castle is the best preserved medieval castle. Marksburg. Yeah. Marksburg Castle. Um, yeah, Mouse Castle. They have the Cat and the Mouse Castle. And uh -huh. the Mouse Castle is a very small, tiny one, very close to the shore and very picturesque and uh, quite nice, yeah. Each one has a story, a legend, like you said, the cat in the mouse castle. Yes. Do you remember the legend about that? Oh, there was a, a count of Katzenellenbogen, and so the first letters of that family name is cat. And so a little bit further up the stream, there was a smaller castle, and they called it the mouse castle. <laughs> Sometimes you don't have to look too far. Were they feuding far. castles? Or uh, no, they were actually, I think family? they were linked to each other. Yeah. It was just a way of... Um, I think maybe this is only in the 19th century that they started giving yeah. them names because tourism kicked in. That's right, because romantic tourism in the 19th century, the Rhine River was. I mean, these towns have hotels from the 19th century. Yeah. Fabian, during those times, we had the painters coming to Bacharach and St. Gore and their castles. And it began with, uh, with the British who began traveling up the Rhine to get into the more romantic mountainous regions of Europe. Okay. And then in the eight, late 1820s, the people in Cologne finally bought a British steamboat that then started taking people up the Rhine for the first time. So in 1829, you could take a boat from Cologne and get to towns like Bacharach in a day, where in 1827, you still needed 14 days to travel along the same section. Wow. So uh, aristocratic travelers would buy a ticket on this boat and yeah. watch the castles roll. There comes the cats. Here comes the mouse. Here comes the false. Here comes Marksburg. And then the giant Rhinefels. 
Tell us about Rheinfels. The Große Wacht am Rhein. Probably the most important castle they built as a fortress along the Rhine. The Counts of Katzenelnbogen, who owned the, the Rheinfels Castle, uh, expanded it over the centuries to also show their power. It towered famously over the Rhine, and every ship coming by would be taxed. Now, today when we look at these castles, most of them are destroyed. So was Castle Rheinfels. Eventually, yeah. it, it had to surrender eventually to the French in the years of the French Revolution. And upon their retreat, the French blew the castle up, famously. So the uh, French didn't need to. It wasn't in battle. They just did this so they wouldn't have trouble with it in the future. Exactly. When they left, they decided they wouldn't want to leave a fortress like this behind to be used to be de- by those feisty <laughs> Germans. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Rhine River Valley Castles, the romantic Rhine area from Cologne down to about Frankfurt. We're talking with Nico Favaril and Fabian Ruger. And Nico, when we talk about the romantic Rhine, there's all these legends, and one of the most famous is the Lorelei. You sail by this striking cliff, and for the Germans, it really has quite an interesting story. What's the story of the Lorelei? It's a nymph, basically, who has beautiful, long, blonde hair, and she sits on the the rock and she sinks. She's got long yes. blonde hair and wearing only her long blonde yes, hair. Yes, I mean, she doesn't wear anything else. And she's singing. And she's singing and she's luring the men. Um, this is the narrowest part of the Rhine. So a lot of uh, ship's captains had trouble passing this narrowest part. And, of course, they couldn't admit that they were bad sailors. So they had to come up with a story <laughs> and say so they could say, hey, we were, we were enchanted by this beautiful creature who... And of course, it's a woman who uh, did this. You know, we we were good sailors, we were good captains, and it's this beautiful woman who's distracting us, the Lorelei. And um, the son of one of the more important rulers died in an accident, and so the ruler sent a troop to find this nymph. And so when they found her, she was rescued by Father Rhine, who took her with a wave to the bottom of the river. So romantic. She's never been seen again. (laughs) Uh, The reason uh, for the Lorelei and why it became so important, uh, there was a very sharp rock wall, but the the water swelling around it created several vortexes, which created a murmuring sound. And the ancient Celtic word luren probably means to murmur. And that's where the name Lorelei, she who murmurs, it's this difficult corner. And boats could be really literally sucked down at that corner into the 19th century. By the mid-19th century, the river had been improved and the problem was no longer there. Neither is the murmuring sound. It's gone today. So it's safe to get your boat past the Lorelei. Now your tourists will be on the deck taking photographs and the, uh, <laughs> and the music system will play a folk song from Germany that sings about the Lorelei and then everything is happy. Our Travel with Rick Steves tour guide specialists to the romantic Rhineland region of Germany are Fabian Ruger, who was raised in West Berlin and now lives in Maine, and Nico Favaril, whose home base in Bruges, Belgium, is a quiet medieval town often added onto Rhine River cruise itineraries. When we go to the Rhine River, we have to have a place to sleep. Fabian, when you take groups to the Rhine River, what would be the best towns for a home base for exploring that area? I personally like to be up at Castle Rheinfels. They have a beautiful hotel and you have a gorgeous view of the Rhine. But in terms of ancient medieval architecture and good wine and so on, of course, I'd prefer Bacharach over it. And Bacharach is famous for its wine. I mean, even back in ancient times. And it has original houses of the 16th century and still has its famous wine festivals. So you can sleep at the castle next in a hotel Mm -hmm. sort of built onto the Rheinfels. But I would say Bacharach and uh, St. Gore, those would be the best two towns to stay in. 
and each of them would have plenty of great little restaurants and, and affordable hotels. And Nico, tell us about the steamers, or the, just the ferries that take the tourists up and down the river. How would you go about cruising the Rhine if you didn't take an actual cruise ship, no, but you just wanted to jump on one of the ferries? You can, uh, for instance, if you're uh, located in St. Gore, you, go, you have a stop there. You have a ship that comes here. You can make it as long as you want. Uh, there, there are several stops along the Rhine, so depending on your time, depending on weather maybe. You can also just take ferries across the Rhine, those are fun, actually. And you don't, you don't get the commentary, but you just cross uh, the river and then you continue further. I would say the best part is from St. Gore to Bacharach that we've been talking about because it goes by the Lorelei, you see the most famous castles, and then you can continue on by train. You can do it slow by boat or you can do it fast by train. And you've got, obviously, you've got roads on both sides of the river, too. And as Nico said, we've got these wonderful ferries that cross the river there. What, six or eight cars can fit on a ferry? And then they just go all the time. And throughout June, July, you have the uh, wine festivals. What is quite wonderful, I think, is if you're up for it, you can rent a bike or bring a bike mm. and do a several-day tour down the Rhine. You don't have to go much uphill because you're going with the flow of the river mm-hmm. slowly. There's a bike path along the entire way, and you go from one wine festival to the next. What could be better? <laughs> that sounds very good. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about the romantic Rhine River Valley. Our guides are Nico Favaril and Fabian Ruger. Nico and Fabian, danke schön. Thank you. Thank you. Compared to the Rhineland, your transportation options in the countries surrounding the Indian Ocean are a bit more demanding. David Mould's work in international development has taken him deep into Bangladesh, India, and Madagascar, where battered buses, overcrowded ferries, and bush taxis are the norm. He shares what he's learned from these challenging countries next on Travel with Rick Steves. Professor and researcher, author and traveler David Mould has spent a decade working in the region of the Indian Ocean, and he reports on it in his book, Monsoon Postcards, Indian Ocean Journeys. And this is an area when I look at it, I just think, I want to go to all of these places, but so many of them are total mysteries to me. So David joins us now just to talk about some of the highlights of the countries that ring the Indian Ocean. So David, thanks for joining us. Pleased to be with you. So, David, you've traveled all through this region, and uh, I'd like to just kind of bounce through it now as people who are spinning the globe and, and trying to imagine traveling to one of these places. And one country that comes up in so many ways is Madagascar. It's the world's fourth largest island, and uh, you've been there, what, four or five times, and uh, from your writing, it just feels like you're enamored with it. What do you find interesting about Madagascar? Yeah, Madagascar's fascinating. I mean, people know Madagascar because of its biodiversity. I mean, it was part of this great ancient continent, Gondwanda, that broke apart. And so for thousands of years, um, plant life and animal life in Madagascar existed separate from other continents. So you have uh, species there that are not known anywhere else in the world. What are the most beloved species? What animals do tourists love to see? It's the cuddly lemur, yeah. <laughs> well, far and away, you know. And they, I've seen lemurs, and they climb on your shoulder, and they hope you've brought them bananas. So a lot of tourists, you know, go for the, the jungle tours to see the lemurs and some other wildlife as well. Those are mostly European and North American tourists. The French tourists go for the beaches. I mean, you can fly to the north of Madagascar to a, 
a place called Nocibé, which translates as Big Island, directly from Paris, you know. And you go to the beach there and, um, you know, it's a wonderful f French haute cuisine at astonishingly low prices and you've never, you've never lost home. You know, uh, Madagascar is between Guadeloupe and Martinique alphabetically in the French tourist brochures. Wow. I didn't realize that. So it's a, it's just a beautiful sunbreak for the French and get some yeah, change yeah, of it, scenery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we went to Martinique last year. Oh, let's, let's go to Madagascar. <laughs> you know, the beaches look just as nice. You know, right. everybody speaks French there, and there's pas de problème. Okay, so you've got this sort of um, unrealistic resort zone, but the country itself is quite poverty-stricken, isn't it? Uh, the country, yeah. If you look at the kind of development indicators for health economic status, child mortality, maternal mortality, water and sanitation. I mean, the country is one of the poorest in the world, and it has a weak and impoverished central government. It's highly reliant on foreign aid. So most of the people in the country are subsistence farmers, mm -hmm. and they can't get their goods to market because the roads are pretty bad. I did a trip from the capital Antananarivo, about 550 miles across the country to a place called Toliara, which is on the southwest coast. Now, the reason I took that trip rather than fly was that the national airline was um, on strike, <laughs> as it mm. often is. It's either on strike or the management's changed or they've got no fuel. And Air Madagascar's uh, one passenger described to me as Air Maybe. Maybe they'll fly, yeah. maybe they won't. But the result was that I took this wonderful trip out of the central highlands of Madagascar, the rice paddies, through the tropical rainforest to kind of the savanna grasslands, and then to a landscape that uh, to Americans would look like Arizona or New Mexico, hmm. a desert you know, the desert southwest. So that was a blessing, would you say, that you couldn't get on the plane and you had to make this overland trip? I think I think so. I mean, it's a, it was an interesting journey. It took two and a half days mm. to do 550 miles. Mm -hmm. So I think that tells you a little bit about the conditions of the roads there. For this epic road trip, you used uh, the capital city Antananarivo as the as the springboard, and you write quite uh, vividly about that city itself. Uh, it's sort of a chaotic capital city. You say it's like Paris with rice paddies. Describe the capital city of Madagascar to us. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. You come in from the airport uh, on this kind of uh, busy road, and you know you see it in the distance, and it's a it's built on a series of hills. The, the the old mariner, Malagasy kings, built their palaces on tops of the ridges there. Hmm. So, you know, the town, the city sort of tumbles down off the ridges, down to the plains. And it's just a fascinating kind of um, car window display of people and push carts and children playing in the streets and... Uh, it's just totally fascinating. And can you be comfortable there as a as a Western tourist? Do you have a, a hotel that provides a refuge where you feel like you're away from the intensity of the streets? Yeah, there are hotels there, but actually the intensity of the streets is what's interesting about the right. place. And, um, well, you like eight I, you hours know, a day where you don't have the intensity of the streets. No, that's right. No, you need, <laughs> you need, there's, there's a couple of hotels that I like that, you know, sort that's of good. give you a little bit of, you know, a refuge from yeah. that. 
David Mould is a journalist, researcher, consultant, and teacher whose travels to the nations surrounding the Indian Ocean include a project leading a UNICEF team to develop communication strategies in Bangladesh. David chronicles his journeys through the region in his book, Monsoon Postcards. His latest book comes from exploring national borders in Asia, Southern Africa, and Eastern Europe, and it's called Postcards from the Borderlands. David's website is davidhmold.com. That's spelled M-O-U-L-D. Our interview was recorded just before the COVID pandemic started. Now, David, let's move on to India. You know, India to me is an emotional place to travel. You know, I like to be a tour guide where I can predict what people like and we'll just line it up here and you'll have a good time. But in India, to me, there's a question of how do people handle the intensity? For some people, that's a plus, and for some people, it's a little overwhelming. What's your experience in India, and, and what are your emotions about India? Very mixed emotions, and I, I agree with you, Rick, that uh, for some people, India's just too much to take. I mean, the poverty is sometimes really in your face. You know, you're stuck in traffic, and people are knocking on your car window, holding out their hands. You know, some of them are genuine beggars. There's also organized begging as well. And then you, you know, you pass slums. What, you know, what, is, with, what is organized begging? Uh, organized begging, <laughs> well, as the adjective implies, there is somebody who sends out beggars to collect money and um, then takes whatever cut they ah. take on what they collect. You know, India is my favorite country. I, I can talk about it like it's chaos and intense, but I have never been so entertained and oh, yeah. inspired by India. And it reminds me, my concept of pain, my concept of need, of joy, of time, of love, of happiness, it's different than uh, other people's concept. And it, it really boxes my ethnocentricity. It, it messes me up. And... Uh, I love it. I find it very stimulating. Take us to Delhi. I'd like to know your impression as a traveler of the capital city, Delhi, because most of us would go there along with other places when we do go mm -hmm. to India. I mean, Delhi, like every Indian city, has the, the traffic jams are overwhelming. Poverty, again, is in your face. You, you wrote, by, by the way, you wrote, I thought it was quite interesting, you, in Delhi you can tell the age of a car by the number of dents it has. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> Delhi dents. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's some cities that I would never drive in. Delhi is certainly one right. of them. But, but somehow, to take a rickshaw in Delhi is a lot of fun because you're just, oh, yes. it's like you're, a, you're river rafting through this sea of humanity. <laughs> Absolutely. And people actually are pretty skilled at it. They know how to weave in and out of the traffic. I mean, doing impossible things that uh, most American drivers would never do. And again, and, and there's a sense just of humor. Like, sit back and take it. Yeah. There's oh, a, yes. There, like I'm sitting in a rickshaw in this like amazing wonderland experience. And then suddenly the, the man in the next rickshaw winks at me and tries to get me to abandon my rickshaw and come over to his rickshaw. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen <laughs> in a taxi in Paris. Absolutely not. So I guess there is some road rage that occurs there. But uh, people, again, you know, adapt wonderfully well to the conditions there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Mould. The book is Monsoon Postcards. And David spent 10 years traveling around the Indian Ocean countries, and he writes about it in this book. David, let's move along on our Blitz tour here to Bangladesh. And Bangladesh, just for the context, when British India used to include what is also Pakistan and Bangladesh, and those were splitting off because they were Muslim, and then Bangladesh used to be, what, East Pakistan, and then it got its own independence. Today, when you think about Bangladesh, it's this 
relatively small but densely populated country, what, 160 million people. It's essentially where the Ganges River hits the Bay of Bengal, right? It seems to me like a, a big delta. Yes, there's a huge delta region. There's the Ganges and there's the Brahmaputra and another river system called the Meghna. So you've got three large river systems emptying into the Bay of Bengal there. I mean, to give you a sense of scale, Bangladesh is about the size of Illinois or Iowa and half the population of the United States. I mean, and, And so think about it that way. It's a very crowded country. Probably half of that population is uh, within a few feet of sea level. And in 50 years, if the worst scenario on global climate change takes place, there'll be climate refugees. Uh, Well, there there are already climate refugees because of saline intrusion, salt water pushing into the delta region, which means that you can no longer cultivate rice in some of those areas. And so those people, they're they're going to the cities, uh, try to work in construction or Mm. rickshaw pullers or simply selling on the streets. So Bangladesh has a huge population crunch. It has climate refugees. It has Rohingya refugees coming across the border or came across the border from Myanmar. And so, yeah, it's, it's a very crowded country. The metropolitan area of Dhaka, the capital alone, about 20 million 20 people. million. So the traffic jams yeah. just never end. And remember, well, it's yes. uh, 90% Muslim. The per capita income is about 5,000. And you can actually go there as a tourist. And there's you talked about old Dhaka, sightseeing in old Dhaka, exploring the markets and appreciating the old architecture. What's that like if you're, if you're just dropping in because you want to have a Bangladesh experience? Take us on a little walk in old Dhaka. Well, um, it's the original part of the city on the banks of the river Buriganga. It started as a small river port with bazaars there. Uh, There are some great colonial buildings from both the Mughal and the British colonial periods there. Sadly, many of them are in bad shape because there's not the money to restore them and developers want to knock them down and put up Mm. apartment blocks instead. But it's this fascinating maze of winding streets, uh, most of which have no street names as far as I can tell. (laughs) And then you end up on the river. And the river's completely fascinating because there you will see these ferries. They're called launches in Bangladesh, which are the main means of transportation for people up and down the country. So uh, you get on on one of the launches in Dhaka, and overnight you can end up in... uh, in Barishal, in the Delta region. And there's also the agricultural produce coming up and being sold on the market. So you look at the riverfront, which is kind of a rough riverfront, a sort of a -hmm. a mud beach, but there are boats pulled up and they're unloading cauliflowers and pumpkins, peppers and and vegetables, and then they're shipping building materials out. So I found the riverfront in particular in the old city absolutely fascinating because it shows how the rivers are still crucial to the commerce and the movement of people in Bangladesh. You wrote, David, that Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, is both a boom town and a necropolis. How so? Yeah, I mean, it is is booming. I mean, you know, it's one of those capital cities that's sort of 
sucks in um, a lot of people and a lot of lot of the wealth of the, of the country. Right. But at the same time, it's a kind of a, a maddening place to live with the crowding and the traffic and the pollution as well. I mean, the pollution is... Because we have to think 20 million people in greater Dhaka. That's just mind-blowing. And also, we have to think this monsoon season. Uh, you write also quite vividly about how people, they're just used to being wet for three months out of the year. <laughs> Give us a little sense of what it's like to be swimming in Bangladesh. Yes. You know, in terms of just getting around during the monsoon, I mean, the picture on the front of my book is a street in Dhaka, and these people are pushing this, uh, what the Bangladeshis call a van, which hmm. is not a van, actually. It's like a bicycle with a flatbed on the back. You know? It looks like and a three-wheeled rickshaw it. that's been turned into a pickup truck. Yeah, well, that's the most common form of transportation for both goods and people. But looking you know, at these people, Bangladesh. They're, they're just, this is a day of work for them, and, and there's no sense yes. of, I don't want to get my feet, my shoes wet, because they're just <laughs> swimming. They're like amphibious creatures, and that's their everyday reality. That is their everyday reality, and that vehicle will probably move better than one of the auto rickshaws, which have probably got to stall out oh, on the cars. So, so people live with it. The real problem in a place like Dhaka is the construction boom and developers have built into the kind of the canals that are supposed to provide the drainage for the city. And so the natural drainage system has been reduced and also the storm drains are clogged with building materials and stuff like that. So, so the flooding's a lot worse than it should be. The government recently announced a plan to kind of clean up all the rivers by some date in the future, though. But it's difficult to see how the continuing growth of population and uh, commercial and residential development is going to solve this. I mean, Dakar's become, mm -hmm. become you know, uh, a more and more difficult city in which to live. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with David Mould, and David's book is called Monsoon Postcards, Indian Ocean Journeys. David, it's been so fascinating to go on a tour with you through this region that so many of us know so little about, and that is a huge percent of humanity, really. From your travels and from your the, the thoughtfulness you've put into reporting on this region, just to wrap up our conversation, what's the one takeaway that, that you think uh, people in the in the industrialized world and in, in, in Europe and America should have when we think about the countries that ring the Indian Ocean? I think we should think of these countries in, in terms of their diversity. And mostly, I guess I do not want people to be afraid of these countries. People say to me, oh, you've been to Bangladesh. Did you feel safe? And I said, Yes, most of the time I felt safe. In fact, I said I feel in more danger on the west side of Charleston mm. than I do mm. in some, some areas in these countries. So I think my general message here is not to have fear of the unknown. People in all of these countries are like people in the Western world. They have families, they're going to school, they've got jobs, they're trying to get by in life and strike up a conversation with people share some food with them, talk to them on the bus or the train or you know on the street, and people will welcome you. And so I, I guess if I have a mission here, it's to demystify these countries and encourage Americans, Westerners to visit without being 
worried about them. Let's not generalize too much about uh, yeah. uh, countries we don't know enough about. I find that fear is for people who don't get out very much. And the flip side of fear is understanding, and we gain understanding when we travel. And in my experience, I was afraid to go to India until I got there. And a lot of people are afraid to go to Bangladesh until they get there. David Mould, thanks so much for sharing in such a thoughtful way all the amazing travels you've had and writing your book, Monsoon Postcards, Indian Ocean Journeys. Thanks, Rick. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. You can listen to an earlier conversation we had with David about monsoon postcards in our Travel with Rick Steves archives. It's from September 2020. We have a link at ricksteves.com radio. Are you ready to make travel plans yet? We'll check in with listeners next at 877-333-7425 to hear what kind of travel goals have helped you get through the pandemic lockdowns and where you're ready to travel as soon as we can. We're glad to be travel partners with you on Travel with Rick Steves. It's been a long time, hasn't it? But we're here. We've survived the global pandemic. And some of us are starting to make plans as one by one, countries and localities get things under control to put an end to the pandemic. International travel still requires understanding rules for each place you want to visit and what you need to do to return home. Those procedures can change faster than the weather. But as infection rates stay down and vaccination rates go up, we're starting to see that the light at the end of the tunnel is a green light to let us start traveling again. Tell us where you're eager to go as soon as you're able. Our number at Travel with Rick Steves is 877-333-7425. And by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Let's start with Judith in Atlanta. Hey, Judith. Hello, Rick. I'm so excited to be on your show. Well, great. And I'm yeah. a huge fan. Um, the pandemic is... It's just made me kind of focus on where I really want to go. Mm-hmm. And um, so my grandparents are from Sweden and Germany and mm-hmm. Ireland and mm-hmm. Scotland. So those are countries I plan to focus on when we can travel again. So you've got relatives in Scandinavia, in Scotland, in Ireland, and in Germany. So you've got a lot of travels ahead of you if you want to visit those kind of places. When you get to uh, any of these places, you'll want to contact places and things you want to do um, directly with an email to make sure they're still open. You know, um, I want to remind you, anybody who's traveling in 2021 or 2022 will be using guidebooks, if they're assuming they're using guidebooks, and I think you should, but guidebooks yes. that really were researched most recently in 2019. There's nothing that's going to be up to date. It's okay. The guidebooks are still really important. But remember, a lot of little businesses will be closed and will have not survived the pandemic shutdown. So you'll want to just make sure that you don't have surprise frustrations. But, you know, just double-check things before you get your heart set on it. Sure. And that's the concern is that a lot of the little mom-and-pop places will be closed. But hopefully things will, you know, get restarted. And with our help, you know, we're, we're a big part of that equation. So when we want to consume as we go back to Europe, I think it's if we really want to support the little restaurants and this kind of thing, which I think a lot of people do, just remember that how you consume helps shape which businesses thrive. And we want to help out the little entrepreneurial ventures in those moms and pops. Absolutely. 
I've been emailing a few people, like uh, this woman who runs a touring company in the Cotswolds, and mm-hmm. I emailed her and because I'd spent a wonderful day there on one of her tours, and she was so happy to hear from me, and yeah. it was just really a good feeling. And this lovely museum in Vienna, the Third Man Museum. Oh, the Third Man. Uh, you know, that's yes. such a sweet museum, and it's Judith, it reminds yes. me of how many little museums and guest houses and restaurants and small tour businesses in Europe are really a, a labor of love by people who have found their niche and they just want to do it. And they're, they've had no income in many cases for the last year. And they're just sort of in hibernation mode, but they're determined to survive it and looking forward to opening up again as soon as people like you and me are able to go back over. Oh, I hope so. And this really nice, sweet little B&B in Venice, they emailed me because I had a trip planned last year Mm -hmm. and obviously had to cancel. And they emailed me asking how I was and and wishing me good health and all. Mm. I mean, it was just lovely. People are just, it's just a people-to-people thing to travel. The humanity of it is more uh, apparent now because we're all in this together. That's you know, I like to look for what I call corona bonuses. And uh, if there is a bonus, <laughs> right. it's just a reminder that we're all in this together and everybody is uh, confronted by the same not knowing what the future holds and how bad is this going to be and how long is it going to last and will we be able to survive this with our businesses. And it's touching when you realize they need us and we need them and, and we're going to get it together. So, Judith, good luck with your travel plans. I'm glad you're going to be able to go um, see your family roots and visit some of these little businesses that you've had correspondence with. And uh, again, I think it's really a good idea, traveling in the immediate months after COVID, to have that email correspondence to confirm that places are open and that they're expecting you, okay? Oh, yes. Thank you so much, Rick, for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Okay, Judith, bye now. Our Travel with Rick Steves listeners are telling us where they want to go as the pandemic gets under control around the world. Craig's on the line from Chicago. Craig, where's the first place you'd like to visit? Yeah, um, once it's safe to travel again, one place I'd like to go back to is Israel. And I found out when I was in Israel in 2013 that there's a 40-mile-long hiking trail called the Jesus Trail. Uh And it's in the Galilee region. It was the creation of an Israeli Jewish entrepreneur and an American Christian hiking enthusiast. So it starts in Nazareth, where, you know, the boyhood home of Jesus, and it ends at the site of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh Uh-huh. And there's a company that oversees it. If you want to walk it, they take your bags from B&B to B&B. They'll schedule hotel arrangements. It sounds really fascinating. And that Galilee region, if if you're interested in, you know, scenes from the Bible, it's just amazing. It's so vivid. And you can walk 40 miles and lace all those biblical sites together, huh? Yeah, and it's and then there's other sites, too, that would draw anyone's attention. Um, like, for example, there's an ancient synagogue on this trail. Who knows how old that is? Um, there's a site where the Crusaders battled Saladin the Great. <laughs> so that's a thousand years after Jesus. But there's so Apparently, much there's history there. There's a forest there. there. You there's... know, I think of Israel, I think of a desert, and there's a forest there. So do I understand this is a 40-mile trail? 
and it's kind of set up where you you have uh, accommodations, lodging every after every day's hike, and they they take your personal gear ahead, so you just walk with your day bag, and then you visit all these sites along the way. Yeah, and what's also great about this is that it's very multicultural. So obviously, Israel is a predominantly Jewish nation. Most of the people who live in the Galilee are Muslim, and this is a trail of Christian history. And this group that oversees it provides a map, and they're very remarkably, well, not remarkably, they're ecumenical about it, which is the way they should be. They mark every church, synagogue, and mosque along the way. Yeah. Oh, well, there's three religions right there, three great religions sharing all that history and all those, the stones they call the fifth gospel, I think, you know, when you go to see those stones and you know the stories. Craig, thanks so much for your uh, suggestion. I think that's something I'd like to put on my list. Thanks, Rick. It's great to talk with you. Best wishes in your travels. Bye now. Bye-bye. Casey's calling in from Apex in North Carolina. Hey, Casey. Hi. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. Um, longtime fan. I've used a lot of your books while my family and I were living in, we lived in England for two years and traveled as much as we could with our three kids. So oh, what a great, a lot of use out of it. What a fun kind of parenting to be in England, so close to so much fun on the continent. For sure. We came back summer of 2019, right before mm-hmm. everything really changed for, in the world. And yeah. couldn't have been more glad to have had those experiences when we did. How old are your kids? Um, now they are 14, 11, and 6. All right. Um, one thing that we really enjoyed was being able to have a home base mm-hmm. places. So my question for you, if you were going to have a home base, because we were looking at maybe going for a month or six weeks to Italy and then maybe Slovenia or Croatia. Mm-hmm. So if you were going to have two home bases, mm-hmm. where would you pick? Well, you know, I love Italy and I love traveling with the kids. And we traveled with our kids when they were your kids' age. And, you know, for two adults, I might say home base in Florence and then side trip by train. But with a family of five, I would say have your own car because you need to be mobile. You need to carry all the gear for the kids and have ways for them to be safe and happy. And then I would stay at an agriturismo that has a swimming pool. Uh, Agriturismo is a farmhouse bed and breakfast. And it can call itself an agriturismo as long as it's actually making money in, in the farm economy. So if if they've got sheep or if they've got wine or if they've got crops, then they can call themselves an agriturismo. And it's great for the kids to see a farm in action. Some of them come with cultural activities, learning how to make pasta and learning how to go hunt with the dogs for truffles, learning how to make a fresco and all of these things. So, you know, most of them are good, but some of them are really good. And it's worth doing your study and then, you know, establishing a, a home base for a week in one spot. And you might even find two, one, uh, one week here and one week there. Is there a specific region that comes to mind you think would be yeah. particularly appealing to I, the family? I like the area south of Siena. Uh, but anywhere between Florence and Rome, I would say. But there's so much to see and do. I, I just really love the area with, within half an hour south of uh, Siena. And then you're thinking about Croatia or Slovenia. In that case, you know, those are tiny, tiny... Well, Slovenia is a little country. You know, the the big city is a charming capital city, Ljubljana. You know, I think that might be fun for the whole family is just to get a dose of Slavic culture, Slavic urban culture. And I would stay in the capital of Slovenia and the capital of Croatia. Um, I would stay in Ljubljana and I'd stay in Zagreb. 
if you wanted to have more of a family vacation on the beach kind of thing, then you would go to the Dalmatian coast of Croatia. Dubrovnik is the touristy place, uh, but there are towns along the coast that are great. Split is a is a bigger town, and it's uh, quite a famous town, and it's a delightful town. The uh, core of Split is actually the former palace of the Roman Emperor Diocletian, and that became the nucleus of the city of Split, S-P-L-I-T. Uh, again, it's no secret. It's, it's quite popular with tourists, but I love... I, I just love Split. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, thanks for your call, Casey, and uh, let us know how your family uh, experience goes. I just, I would love to spend a week in an agriturismo with my kids, but but now they're <laughs> they're a little bit beyond that age. But um, I'm glad that you can have that opportunity. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for your call. What's on your travel wish list? We're at 877-333-RICK or radio at ricksteves.com at Travel with Rick Steves. Christopher in Oxford in the United Kingdom sent us an email, and Christopher writes, I'm finishing up my Ph.D. at the University of Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar this year, and I had hoped to visit Munich, Nuremberg, and Vienna this past December. But, of course, he had to cancel it because of COVID. He continues, I love European Christmas markets. My first experience was in Budapest in 2018, traveling with a group of fellow scholars. I've since visited Christmas markets in Strasbourg, Berlin, and Prague. After the pandemic... I hope they return with their same sense of conviviality, warmth, and holiday cheer. Now, this is interesting. Christopher loves to visit Christmas markets, and a lot of people go crazy for Christmas markets, and they just build a whole itinerary on Christmas markets, but they're all in Germany. And from my experience, and I've seen a, a number of Christmas markets, there are variations on the same theme. But Christopher lists four Christmas markets, and it happens to be in four different countries. Hungary, France, Germany, and the Czech Republic. That is a great idea. And all of those towns have wonderful Christmas markets. Budapest, Strasbourg, Berlin, and Prague. Um, the most famous Christmas market is in Nuremberg. I loved my experience there. In fact, we filmed there one of our, our TV shows. Uh, also, Salzburg has a beautiful Christmas market. And Vienna. So, will they have the same sense of conviviality, warmth, and holiday cheer when this is over? Well, nobody knows for sure, but I would bet they will. I know Europe is all about conviviality. Every country has a word for convivial. You know, it's just so important. I think once we get herd immunity, we're going to be back in the pubs, clinking glasses with people who really believe that strangers are just friends who've yet to meet. We're going to be sliding on those benches at the beer halls in Germany, hoping there's no slivers. We're going to be enjoying the, the amazing people ambience of the streets of Prague. Oh, I just love being on Charles Bridge. Uh, Europe is going to welcome us with a warm and enthusiastic welcome. And once we have these vaccines taken hold, I just think it's, it's logical from a science point of view that we will be able to get together again and enjoy that kind of cheer. Christopher, I hope you do on your next trip. And it takes patience. I know you're all excited about going to those places and it couldn't do it, but you'll do it coming up soon. Thanks for the email. And Michael's on the line in Houston. Michael, thanks for your call. Where are you thinking of going? Uh, well, after uh, being stuck here in Houston for so long, I'd like to go to uh, Amsterdam and take my wife to the Van Gogh Museum and the Rijksmuseum and maybe see a few other sites there. I was thinking maybe five to seven days, then take a train to Brussels and spend maybe a day or two, uh, have some great Belgian beer and some great chocolate, then uh, go on to Normandy, where my father served as an Army 
doctor during World War II and then go to uh, County Clare in Ireland where my great-great-grandfather on my mother's side came from. Hmm. Wow. I was thinking three weeks. I think that sounds like an amazing itinerary. Uh, one great thing about it is not a lot of miles. You fly into Amsterdam. That's quite straightforward from uh, Houston. And your highlights in Amsterdam, Van Gogh and Rijksmuseum, those are right next to each other. And you want to just be really careful whenever you're planning any critical sites. If it's possible to make a reservation, I would say do it, especially in uh, coming out of covid they may have capacity concerns and so on where you'll you'll want to make a reservation and, and have an appointment if that's doable. Also remember, in those museums, Michael, they have wonderful um, you know audio tours or suggested tours you might want to take advantage of. I've also got uh, an app, which is Rick Steves Audio Europe and has tours for Van Gogh, for the Rijksmuseum, and also several tours in Amsterdam town itself. Uh, so that, that's a wonderful itinerary. You don't need five to seven days, but if you have them, that's good. And then you're just a couple hours by train to Brussels. And, you know, people go to Belgium for chocolate and beer for good reason. I, I always joke, I don't really get that excited about chocolate. People say it's to die for, you know, <laughs> unless I'm in Belgium. And then I really go first class on the chocolate. Um, it's no secret, but um, Bruges is the cute little touristy town. It's the ultimate beautiful preserved medieval town in Belgium. And it's just 45 minutes or an hour from Brussels. And for most travelers, you'll be more comfortable in Bruges if you want to do things like try the chocolate, uh, enjoy the beer. It's much more cozy and accessible. Well, that's good to hear because I thought about Bruges myself. Yeah. Get a hotel right downtown or a bed and breakfast or a guest house, and everything's within walking distance. Be sure to do your homework in advance, Michael, and know about the, the families the, who have the venerable chocolaterias. And you can go there, and they're so proud of their art, and their art is chocolate. And that'll be just a wonderful experience. And then you're going to head on to Normandy. Uh, how do you plan to get to Normandy? Uh, well, I'd be open to any suggestions. I was thinking I would have to uh, go back through Brussels and to uh, Paris and take the train from Paris. Yeah, I think you would. You'll, you'll go from Bruges to Brussels to Paris, and then from there you'll take the train into Normandy. When you get to Normandy, remember there are so many English World War II buffs, and they are available for hire. Often they have a car, and if you have a family pilgrimage to make to visit the footsteps of your father and so on, to have a guide uh, sort through all that for you, it would be the best money you could spend. So find a guide who can meet you at your hotel and have a car, and he'll lay out a great day for you, and you'll get so much accomplished in one day without any of the stress. Then you got to figure out how to get over to Ireland. And, you know, you could take the boat. I took the boat from Normandy across to Ireland, and that was actually quite nice. I don't know what the schedule's going to be like, especially after COVID, but look into the boat ride if you don't mind better part of a day, uh, 20 hours in the boat or something like that. Consider no, that. You know, a real adventure to take the boat. And then when you do get there, have a rental car waiting for you in the port because you'll want to drive around Ireland to look at your family routes and so on. Uh, otherwise, you could go back to Paris and fly to Dublin, but I'd take the boat if it works for your schedule. Where does the boat land in Ireland? It lands down in the southeast tip of Ireland. So you're close to County Clare, and it should be fine. So, uh, But 21 days is more than enough time to do that, Michael. Okay, that sounds great. Hey, thanks for the call, and I'm excited about your itinerary. Let us know how it goes. I'll definitely do that. Thanks again, Rick. Bye, Bye now. Thank you. 
Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Andrew Wakeling uploads the shows to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate promotions. And our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our friends at West Virginia Public Radio for their help this week. We can notify you about our next recording sessions and give you a chance to talk with Rick about your travels. Details are in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com radio. See you next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Visit Europe in 2022. Rick Steves Europe bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and more than 40 itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.